MediaMind, a new podcast from the TRT World Research Center, unpacks some of the most popular yet misunderstood news events of the month, examining them and connecting them to the defining political, social, and intellectual order of the 21st century. In each episode, academics, journalists, activists, and opinion leaders will unravel political narratives surrounding issues ranging from global politics and media controversies to criminal justice and corporate crime. In today's episode, we delve into one of the most deeply entrenched and debated conflicts in the world, the Israel-Palestine conflict. Now, this enduring struggle has captured global attention for decades, but what makes it particularly fascinating is the way it is portrayed in the media. Narratives surrounding the Israel-Palestine conflict have often been complex, multifaceted, and divisive. So to help us untangle some of the media narratives surrounding this conflict and to explore the framing of the news coverage, I am delighted to host Sami Hamdi. Sami Hamdi is the Managing Director of the International Interest and a renowned uh, Middle East commentator. Thank you for accepting our invitation, Sami. Thank you for having me, Dr. Tarf. So let's uh, kick start. Let's get the ball rolling. I would like to know more about the Western media coverage. I mean, somehow we get the impression from most Western uh, mainstream media that the conflict started on October 7th. Can you give us a background about everything that led to that point? I think that one of the things that is worth noting is that Western media coverage has, as you said, tended to focus on the events as if they started on October 7th. But I do think that that assertion is beginning to crack. And we've seen a number of outlets apologize for their coverage, such as BBC, such as CNN, such as Sky News, that have apologized for failing to appreciate some of the nuances and intricacies of the topic and presenting misleading information. I think that if we're talking about the issue of October 7th itself, it's important to remember that one week before October 7th, Netanyahu was standing in the United Nations holding up a map of his vision of the Middle East. And in this map, he had completely erased Palestine completely. Moreover, in the same sentence when he was talking about this map, he was also celebrating the prospect of normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia as being, in his words, the greatest deal since the end of the Cold War. The Israeli ambassador at the UN told Cannes Television, the Israeli television, on the same day, that normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia would, quote, mean the complete Arab abandonment of the Palestinian cause. And when Netanyahu's right-wing allies realize this, they will know to sign off on it and they will appreciate the opportunities that that brings. The idea being, of course, the context of annexing the West Bank and annexing parts of Gaza as well. We saw military buildup near the Janine refugee camp by the Israeli forces, indicating that they were simply waiting for normalization of ties of Saudi Arabia before commencing on a bid to annex the West Bank. The media coverage has neglected all of that and tended to focus on October 7th. And there are a number of reasons for it. The first reason is it's important to note that previously, Palestinian voices have tended to fail to break through into mainstream media in a way that would enable them to communicate with the mass public. The reason this time we've seen apologies and the like is because social media has broken that grip on the narrative. When we look at, for example, the BBC presenter, She didn't apologize because the Israelis complained. She didn't apologize because Israel's allies complained. She apologized because the overwhelming feedback to the BBC from ordinary viewers and from social media was one of anger. But going back to your question in terms of why does the Western media tend to focus, I think it's primarily due to the lack of representation of the Palestinian narrative and a government-backed initiative to promote the Israeli narrative. And I think, and this is no disrespect to those before us who tried to fight and, and for the Palestinian cause, 
But this is the first time we have a generation of fluent, eloquent, English-speaking Palestinians in an environment of social media that has allowed them to convey their message. And that's why we're seeing a change and a battle between trying to maintain the status quo of being pro-Israel while trying to adapt to a public opinion that is increasingly anti-Israel. Well, thank you for this uh, very succinct, uh, you know, elaboration on that point. Well, I want to delve further on this point, like how this conflict, which has been marked by a number of pivotal moments subject to competing narratives, explanation and justifications, how sometimes, somehow, this mainstream media, even though I understand from you that, you know, the pushback now is, is bigger and greater than any time before, and we, we're going to come to that, but how, for example, some people still today think that, you know, in Europe and America, that Israel and Palestine are somehow like two neighboring countries, and this is like going to war about like some futile reasons. Can you enhance this point? Like, why are they still thinking the same? I think a lot of it has to do with Israeli representation at the highest level of government and the highest level of media. Consider the U.S. government. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, went to Tel Aviv and he said quite brazenly, I come here first and foremost as a Jew before I come as a Secretary of State. When you look at, for example, the advisors to uh, Joe Biden, a lot of them are very pro-Israel. A lot of them have a very deep sympathy for Israel. And they are in positions of power. They are in positions of influencing policy. If I was to ask you, Dr. Tarek, to name me an equivalent of the Muslim world or the like, in those capitals who is influencing policy, you wouldn't be able to name probably even, even one or two. And I think that's the reality. A lot of it has to do with representation, even in mainstream media. And I think a lot of it, I, I won't exaggerate it, but I think a lot of it has to do with representation even in media channels. I remember going to media channels 10 years ago and you compare it to media channels now. Today, they are much more diverse. Before, they were not diverse. Before, we didn't see many Muslims working in the mainstream media. We didn't see many... Uh, non-whites or the like working in this mainstream media. So even for somebody to open the door to allow effective representation or even influence the media policy or the media narratives, you realize that with this lack of representation at the highest levels means only one narrative dominates and that the only way the other narrative emerges is as a token representation due to laws of rights of reply where they bring a sanitized version of a Palestinian who is not necessarily as eloquent as the other side, which enables the media to maintain its narrative. And that's why I argue that one of the things that's changing is the greater representation, is the emergence of channels like TRT World, which is communicating to the English world, which is able now to enter that landscape and able to convey that opinion. I think the simple answer, aside from the fact, of course, that there's always been historical sympathies from these nations for Israel uh, and the like, I think it also has to do with the lack of representation of the Palestinian narrative at the highest levels. And the reality is that it's only recently in the past five, six years that we've seen congressmen and women emerge like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib in the Congress ready to deliver terms such as apartheid on the Congress floor. It's only recently now that we're seeing a lot of Muslims go into Sky News, into BBC, into CNN, into these places that are able to exert that. Theme. I think that's the simplistic answer, of course, it's always more complex, but that's certainly one of the main reasons why even the idea of affording space for the other narrative to breathe has always been denied because there's no one to advocate for it. 
Well, this is uh, this is brilliant, and we are getting to the crux of the matter. Well, let me just ask about this point. Like uh, I, I heard one of your interviews, uh, just recent interviews, and you mentioned that somehow even the framing is problematic. Like when they say Israel Hamas, it's an Israel Hamas war. So the choice of words, the choice of headlines can be, you know, super problematic. And those who don't have that background, who don't have that inside knowledge of the conflict, or at least they didn't follow events for a long time, they can fall for those kind of traps. So what can you tell us about some of the frames and the headlines that have been recently in the media, like starting with this uh, Israel Hamas and why it's problematic? I think that one of the things that is worth noting is that Israel has been deeply concerned at the shifting of the framing. We started with a discussion of Israel versus Hamas because Israel believed that given its allies already designate Hamas as a terrorist organization, it would handcuff everybody who wants to talk about the Palestinian cause, because then you could trap them with simple questions such as, do you condemn Hamas, which is in itself a very unfair question, because it implies that Hamas is the aggressor, whereas under international law itself, Israel is considered to be the occupier and the aggressor. So it's a flawed question in and of itself. And that's why there was a necessity to frame it as Israel versus Hamas, as opposed to Israel versus Hamas and nine other Palestinian factions and those in the West Bank where Hamas doesn't even exist and where Netanyahu is prioritizing the annexation of Jenin and the like. I do think that one of the reasons there's been concern about the framing on the part of Israel actually came about as a result of a number of viral videos that suggested that the Palestinians were not the animals or savages that Israel was insisting they are. You'll remember, Dr. Tarek, yourself on Al Jazeera Arabic, when there was a video of uh, the fighters surrounding a Jewish woman holding a baby, and they are shouting between themselves, Usturuha, Usturuha. We have a humanity that doesn't exist in them. Show her, uh, cover her, protect her. And when that video went viral, it caused concern in Israel. When the Israeli settler spoke to Channel 12 and they are asking her, what did they do to you? What did they do to you? And she says, they came into the house and he says to me, I'm not going to harm you because I'm Muslim. And I felt comfortable. And then he asked me for a banana and then he left. When you see, for example, the hostages that were released and she's asked, why did you turn back and, and say Shalom Aleikum to your captors. She said, because they were very friendly and they treated me nicely and we ate from the same food that they ate, something that upset CNN so much that they decided to ignore that part and go with the headline, it was hell. So I think that the reason that we saw even the fake news or the 40 beheaded babies or the like is because Israel wanted a framing that suggested this was a nation state versus terrorism. But as a result of all these videos that were emerging, it was becoming abundantly clear that this is not exactly terrorism that Israel is fighting because terrorists don't do the things that we see in the videos that are going viral and that ordinary people are seeing. And that's why I think that going back to the framing, the reason there is an assertion that this is Israel versus Hamas is because if you tell people it's Israel versus Palestine, you suddenly have to recognize Hossam Zumlut, the Palestinian ambassador to the United Kingdom, who is not Hamas. You suddenly have to listen to Mustafa Barghouti, who is from the West Bank. He's not part of Hamas. You suddenly have to listen to Mohammed Al-Kurd, who is in Jerusalem. He's not in Gaza. He's not part of Hamas. The moment you say it's Israel versus Palestinians, you create an image in the mind of the viewer that this is an issue that's bigger than Hamas, that's bigger than Gaza, and that encourages people to start looking into the issue. And that's why I think there's a vicious push to frame it solely as Israel versus Hamas, when in reality it's not. Well, from what I get from you is that the propagandistic efforts of Israel are somehow 
being dented by a pushback that is uh, slowly getting more gravitas and uh, of course many voices who, who know very well the situation in Palestine and many of them are Palestinians themselves and explain to the world opinion what's happening and also the social media. So how far has social media disturbed and the new generation, the Gen Z and the millennials disturbed this uh, Hasbara that's coming from Israel? I think that it cannot be understated the extent to which social media and also, uh, bear in mind, not just social media, but also alternative channels that speak English, like TRTOD, like Al Jazeera English and these others, that have relentlessly amplified the Palestinian voices and forced it on the forefront. I think that if you remember that in 2021, when Israel attacked Gaza, one of the things that Benny Gantz did, and this is available for anybody who wants to check it up on Google, Benny Gantz called an emergency meeting with the directors of Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. And in that emergency meeting, he demanded that Palestinian content be taken down and that it be restricted. The Minister of Defense at the time was gathering with social media to ask them to take down Palestinian content. If the defense minister who's in charge of the military operations believes it to be necessary to sit down with the directors of social media, it shows you how disturbed he was by the proliferation of pro-Palestinian content on social media. They felt that pressure. Chances are, Dr. Tarek, if you were, able, if you were to put this video or this recording that we're doing together on YouTube, you will notice that everybody who clicks on it will see an IDF advert before they watch our video because Israel is spending millions on social media adverts. And when anybody who knows about adverts, you put the criteria who you want to target and they are targeting even people who want to watch this video because for them, they believe that it's a serious issue that the global opinion is shifting. If you notice Dr. Tarat in the Washington Post, Blinken, the Secretary of State, when he went to Tel Aviv, he said, I'm here as a Jew. And he was supposed to go to Tel Aviv to show support and go back to Washington. When he landed in Tel Aviv, he changed his mind and said, no, I'm going to visit Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Egypt and the neighboring countries. Washington Post, underneath the headline about his visit to Egypt and Saudi, they write, quote, Blinken visits regional powers to seek help to tamp down on public anger. He was he, When he went to Tel Aviv, it appears that when he sat with Netanyahu, they said that one of the issues they are facing is that social media is forcing a shift in the public opinion as a result of the ordinary citizen on the street. And therefore, there is a necessity to go to regional allies to ask them for help in containing that public anger. The reason why I'm mentioning all of that is to highlight the extent to which social media is now making the policymakers buckle and scramble to try to limit the reach of social media. You'll remember Dr. Tariq when Biden came out and he said that he had seen the pictures of the beheaded babies. And then the White House came out and said Biden had not seen the pictures and that he was referencing a call with Netanyahu. The White House didn't issue that clarification because the Israelis asked for it. They didn't issue that clarification because Blinken demanded it. They didn't issue that clarification because Biden wanted it issued. They issued the clarification because they believed that the pressure of public opinion and social media was so much that they could not afford to be seen to be lying so brazenly in front of the world because it would, in the words of a G7 diplomat to the Financial Times, it would permanently break relations between the West and the global south at a time when the west needs the global south 
in order to push back against Russia in Ukraine, in order to push back against China and Africa and these various other places. So here we see clear, tangible examples of how social media is forcing the policymakers to buckle. And even in the media itself, when we saw how the journalists who initially spread the news about the 40 beheaded babies started re retracking their steps, when we saw BBC apologize for saying that the protests in London were, were, were pro-Hamas, when we saw CNN apologize for giving 24-hour coverage to the beheaded babies and admitting that they fell short of journalistic standards. When Sky News apologizes for Kay Burley's insistence that Hossam Zumlut, the, the ambassador, had said that the Israelis had it coming, and she kept repeating it throughout the day through the interviews, Sky News apologized for that because the implication was not what Hossam Zumlut. Those apologies, and you'll know Dr. Tariq yourself, they're unprecedented. We've never seen these apologies before. Before. We've never seen articles such as in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof, who writes that the U.S.-Israel relationship is no longer unshakable. We've never seen this before, and that's as a result of social media and also what social media has done. And I won't go on this, I'll finish on this point. One of the things that it's done is even in aggressive media interviews where the mainstream media is biased, social media's preference for sound bites means that the guest does not need to win in the interview, but if he or she gets a soundbite, that goes viral on social media, and the ordinary citizen sees the soundbite, not the interview. And that's why we saw Ron DeSantis in the US, the Republican candidate, when he went to a supermarket to insist on Israel's right to self-defense. The ordinary American citizen, the white American citizen, not, not like me, born and raised in London, but originally from North Africa, we're talking the white Americans, turned around to Ron DeSantis and said, I no longer believe you because I've seen what the what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. And this is the point here, and this is where I finish. What social media has done is, in a world where Israel is telling the world what is happening, social media is letting the Palestinians show the world what is happening. And I think that people are believing the pictures and the videos and no longer believing the narratives of Israel. Well, this is uh, very, very eloquently put, Sami. Thank you for that. Also, there is something I wanted to ask you about. She's also stemming from this power of the new generation, social media, alternative media, is also the demonstration that we saw in the streets. For example, in London, we saw one of the probably the largest marches in the in, in the history of the country and elsewhere, you know, from New Zealand to Australia to Canada to the US. What do you make up? Is it like uh, still the same momentum coming from this, uh, this media, this footage that people are seeing the suffering, the plight of the Palestinian or is there something else to it? I think one of the things that's quite fascinating about the protest is that when you talk to many of them who are there, they are saying that it's the first time they are attending the protest. And some of them are actually saying that for all of their lives, they supported Israel, they believe the Israeli narrative, but that they've been so horrified by what they've seen on social media in terms of what Israel has done in terms of the war crimes, bombing hospitals, bombing children, killing journalists or the like, that they have taken to the streets and felt it was their responsibility to take to the streets. Moreover, when people take to the streets in London, the way social media works is that those in Paris see it. So Paris take to the streets, even though France has banned protests. And then Rome see it. So in Rome, they take to the streets. And then in Berlin, they take to the streets. Social media has been effective in Turkey as well. We've not just seen protests in Istanbul. We saw them in Ankara as well. We saw the million-man protest in Istanbul, where even the president attended because it became 
became an issue of such public uh, nature, and it was an opinion that galvanized public opinion to the extent that the president went and attended the protest himself, something that the other leaders of the regions haven't actually done either. We've seen that in Jordan, tens of thousands took to the streets. We saw in Egypt, which traditionally has not allowed protests, allowed protests for Palestine because the public opinion was at fever pitch in order to allow those protests and give them an avenue through which to express themselves. But the reason there is so much energy at the protest is not because they are isolated incidents, but because social media allows a coordination between people internationally that encourages each other to take to the streets. There is the, uh, this idea that when the Americans see the British, who see the Turks, who see the Malaysians, see the Pakistanis, social media is now showing you what's happening in the world. So the world feels smaller. So you are inspired by protests that come out in Istanbul to go and protest in Washington or to go and protest. I even saw before the organization of the protest in Washington, I saw people sharing the protest in Istanbul and sharing the protest in London and saying, look what everybody else is doing in the world. Let's do our duty and go to protest too. So in this context, social media has done two things. The first is that as a result of the retweeting and sharing and commenting or the like, the algorithm which favors popular posts has elevated pro-Palestinian content. And when it elevates pro-Palestinian content, the algorithm pl places those posts on the homepage timeline, even if you don't follow those accounts. Everybody will know when you follow an X or Twitter, Dr. Tarek, you know, sometimes on your homepage, you see people that you don't follow, they, they, they come up. That's because the algorithm is recommending popular posts. The algorithm is recommending pro-Palestinian content. And that's why Ian Bremmer made a very interesting tweet, the political analyst in the US and the head of Eurasia Group, where he said, I've never seen so much disinformation about Palestine and Israel. What he meant was, was I've never seen so much pro-Palestinian content. I've never seen social media recommend it to me. I've ne And you can imagine that when the neutral is now seeing those images and when they're horrified by it, that galvanizes them to take to the streets, which increases the number of the protests. We started with 100,000 in London, then 300,000 the following week, then 500,000, and the expectation it may even get to a million, but that's because of social media and the way it's encouraging everybody else to take to the streets. Uh, and the other side of the coin, in the meantime, we're see also witnessing high levels of censorship. So even like, for example, social media, we're seeing a lot of, I, and you mentioned this before, like a lot of content is being taken out. People on Facebook are getting blocked or prevented from or, or having restricted uh, access. We're also witnessing uh, high levels of censorship in uh, mainstream media. Uh, for example, the three journalists, prominent journalists, Muslim journalists at MSNBC, you know, Ayman Mohyeddin, Mahdi Hassan, and uh, Ali Benshi. They were taken off anchoring duties just because to prevent them from, you know, uh, anchoring any kind of popular policy in uh, content. Also, uh, the Guardian, for example, they, they didn't renew the contract for their, their cartoonists, things like that. Do you think that on the long haul or at least the medium, the medium run, this kind of censorship, this kind of Muslim, the alternative view is going to affect this uh, pro-Palestinian uh, mobilization in, in social network and alternative media? I think there are two things to note here. The first is there was, there was a very interesting interview that I recommend everybody to watch. It, it's with the former head of Facebook for the North Africa, for, for North Africa region. And he was saying that in answer to this question, he was saying that one of the things is that when you overwhelm the social media with the hashtags and with the content, it's impossible to completely silence it. That the only way to push back against censorship is to overwhelm the algorithm with this content. And if you consider that on the Palestine-Israel issue, something that unites people around the world, you'll think there are many divisions over Syria or over Libya or over Sudan or the like. But when it comes to the Palestinian issue, people on all sides seem to come together 
on the on the, and with the same opinion. So you can imagine that, for example, 1.9 billion Muslims around the world, a quarter of the world's population, are tweeting and sharing content about Palestine. That's overwhelming for the algorithms. Then add the sympathetic Jewish population who shut down Congress or who did protests in front of the White House. Then add the allies on the left wing or the like who are taking to the streets in London in support of the protest. So we can safely say there are about 3 billion, 3.5 billion people to half of the world's population talking about Palestine. Social media cannot silence 3 billion people around the world or 3.5. Even if they shadow ban a few accounts or take down a few pages, we can see that it's relentless. And I will say, and I'll give an anecdote, even though I know anecdotes are bad form. I've never had the numbers of social media engagement that I've had over the past two weeks with regards to Palestine, suggesting that if there's an attempt at shadow ban or if there's an attempt at restriction, certainly they're unable to target everybody. They're targeting some people, but they're unable to as a result of the sheer size. The second point that is worth noting is that while Facebook and Instagram and TikTok have engaged in censorship, we've seen that on Twitter or X, there's been a resistance to censorship. You'll note, Dr. Tarek, that in the European Union, Oliver Vahali had suggested in the first week after October 7th that he would propose a bill to the European Commission or the European Parliament and warn X or warn Twitter that they should do more to censor and they should do more to crack down. Elon Musk replied with a segment from The Daily Show by Jon Stewart, where Jon Stewart starts talking and there's an escalation between Israel and Gaza and people stand up and tell him, oh, you're anti-Semite, you this and you that. And then he goes and sits down. Essentially, Elon Musk saying, I'm not going to bow down to this pressure and I'm going to allow uh, people to continue talking. I do think that if X or Twitter was under the previous administration, I think there would be greater censorship. I think that Elon Musk's approach to X has really allowed that space. And to be honest, a lot of the war and narratives, 99% of it is being fought on Twitter or on X. Moreover, you'll note that, for example, when Israel cut off the internet on Gaza as it tried to prepare for a ground invasion when it made its first attempt and failed, Everybody took to Twitter and started putting hashtags Starlink for Gaza, and they were adding Elon Musk. According to some of some experts, it was the fastest rising hashtag in the history of Twitter. And Elon Musk ended up responding within 24 hours, saying that he's going to set up Comstar for humanitarian organizations, something that upset the Israelis and made the Israelis threaten to cut off contact or cut off work with Elon Musk. The point here being is that on the one hand, you have that so, some social media are trying to censor accounts, but as a result of the overwhelming content coming from so many people on Palestine, they're unable to censor it. And the second point is not all social media is engaging in the same levels of censorship. And that's why there's criticism on Twitter or on X that it's allowed greater freedom for people to express themselves. And what's becoming abundantly clear, Dr. Tarek, is that in an environment of freedom, the Palestinian arguments are stronger than the Israeli arguments. In an environment that is liberated, where there is true freedom of speech, the neutral finds himself or herself aligning more with Palestine than they do with Israel. When there is an equality on the debating table, the Palestinian argument always wins because the humanity of the Palestinians becomes abundantly clear, while the genocidal tendencies of Israel becomes abundantly clear. And that's why and I'll finish on this point. There is a video that went viral of one particular American who said that he was stunned that all his life he had supported Israel, but now he could no longer in good conscience support them because of what he'd seen happen. And that's testament to how everybody who's watching this or watching this recording, everybody who's participated in raising awareness, they are the ones who achieved that and broke Israel's monopoly on the narrative. And I think that this uh, Israel will never be able to recover that so long as social media continues the way it is. Well, excellent. Again, um, you, you give us many points to ponder about. 
If we step back a little bit from the media, how do you see now the conflict evolving? What's your take? Who are the main players? That who are the winners, the losers? How how in in a nutshell? I know it's a, it's a big ask, but in a nutshell, I think that what's important to note is it's easy to understand if you put yourself in Netanyahu's position. You came back from the United Nations. And the Saudi Crown Prince bin Salman had said, we're getting closer every day to normalization of ties. The UAE ambassador to the UN said that we have no influence over Israel, over Palestine, but we have very good economic ties. And it's amazing how many flights we have between Tel Aviv and Abu Dhabi. We've seen, for example, that Turkey, as a result of the extreme pressure from many, from the US and from Europe, we're seeing that it's trying to find a temporary truce in order to focus on the economy or the like. So there was a suggestion that Netanyahu, when he met with Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he was saying this is a moment where there's going to be truce. I won't be bothered too much by Turkey. We saw that other countries as well, suggesting that the Palestinian cause as a result of economic crises and political crises, it's not a particular priority. When Netanyahu returned to Tel Aviv, he was convinced that the Palestinian cause was dying, that the Palestinian cause no longer had support, that it was only a matter of time before he would annex the West Bank. And it's in this context that the Palestinians mounted the most effective attack on Israel since perhaps even 1948. They stunned him at a time in which they were supposed to be at their weakest. The reason why I mention that is because it directly answers your question. The issue now, the sole obstacle to de-escalation is Netanyahu, because Israeli polls suggest that Israelis blame Netanyahu, not Hamas, for what has happened. That Netanyahu is the one who failed. That Netanyahu promised security and he didn't deliver it. That Netanyahu unnecessarily provoked them. That Netanyahu has brought about the greatest threat to Israel. Even the families of the hostages are hosting protests and launching protests against Netanyahu, blaming Netanyahu. Netanyahu has not attended any of the funerals of the hostages because he's worried that they will lambast him and that that will go viral on social media. We've seen Netanyahu's allies try to impose a bill to ban protests that criticize the government because they're worried that Israelis will take to the streets to demand that Netanyahu resigns. The point here that I'm making is that it's clear that the Israeli public opinion and Netanyahu are not aligned. And therefore, Netanyahu is worried and concerned that if he stops fighting now, because right now the Palestinians are ready for a ceasefire, Qatar is ready for a ceasefire, Turkey is chasing to mediate a ceasefire, the Americans are ready for a ceasefire, everybody wants it to de-escalate. Bin Salman wants a ceasefire. Jared Kushner was in Riyadh talking and saying they were enthusiastic about normalization, and Bin Salman is eager to normalize. He wants it to de-escalate in order to get the NATO-style security agreement with the Americans. The only person who doesn't want to ceasefire is Netanyahu. And you'll note, Dr. Tarek, and for everybody else who's watching this, if you open the Times of Israel, a few days ago, they published an article in which they said that Netanyahu and the IDF, this is the Times of Israel, they said Netanyahu and the IDF were frustrated and annoyed that Hamas released the two elderly Israeli hostages because they believe that if Hamas releases the hostages, it will ruin the appetite for a ground invasion. Think about it. Netanyahu is upset and angry that the hostages are safe and that they were released by Hamas, which explains why Netanyahu is bombing Gaza, showing no regard for Israeli hostages, killing some of the Israeli hostages, because for Netanyahu, this is not about the Israelis. 
he knows the Israelis want him to resign. He knows that the reason he couldn't form a war cabinet immediately and why it took more than a week to form it was because the opposition parties in Israel believed that Netanyahu was not fighting for Israel. He was fighting for his political future. Netanyahu knows that if he de-escalates now, the world will say that the Palestinians mounted the strongest attack when they were supposed to be at their weakest, that Netanyahu is the worst prime minister in history because he brought about the greatest threat since 1948. The Israelis will demand that Netanyahu resigns. And this is why for Netanyahu, even though he doesn't have a strategy going forward, he knows that if he stops now, his political future is finished. And that's, I think, is the easiest way to explain who are the winners or who are the losers. The reality is that the winners are the pro-Palestinians and the Palestinians who have broken Israel's monopoly on the narrative and managed to galvanize public opinion to the extent that the Americans are now calling for a humanitarian pause after initially refusing to call for a pause or refusing all calls for humanitarian aid or the like. They are buckling because of public opinion. The Palestinians have won in shifting the public opinion and Netanyahu is the greatest loser despite the way that he is bombing Gaza because what he's bombing is not Gaza. He's trying to bomb the sudden renewed spirit that the Palestinian cause is alive. He wants to bomb the idea that Bloomberg has, is writing about, which is that normalization no longer works if you don't engage the Palestinians. He wants to bomb these ideas out of existence because if a ceasefire happens now and everybody still talks about these ideas, I think we may be looking at a turning point similar to those in our own countries in North Africa, Dr. Tarek, when we were fighting the colonial powers or the like, where, for example, in 1945 in Algeria, France massacred 30,000 Algerians. But that was the turning point for liberation 17 years later because France permanently lost the public global opinion. It was such an atrocious crime, they could no longer summon the international community to back them. And I think this is the turning point, similar to South Africa, when the international community could no longer support apartheid. And they ended up even sanctioning the apartheid regime, which led to the fall of the apartheid regime. I think that Netanyahu is the greatest loser and the Palestinians are the winners, irrespective of how this ends and how this plays out. Well, I think you have given us, again, uh, so many takeaways to digest. I, I'm, I'm really wow, you know, in front of all these answers. You have summed it up so, 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 so nicely. Sami, I think that was one of our uh, best thank episodes so far. I thank you really, really for, for your time and for eloquently unpacking such a, a complex issue for uh, our audience. Uh, on this note, I want again to thank you and I hope to host you again some, sometime uh, very soon. Thank you very much. And I commend the role that TRT World and yourself and everybody else is playing in this. And, and I think it's vital. And, and thank you very much for having me. And, and, and I hope that, that we're all able to contribute to, re, to reframing the narratives in a way that is closer to justice and not one that abades and abets the ideas of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Thank you very much for having me and thank you to everybody else. Thank you so much. Well, that was all for this Media Mind episode brought to you by the TRT World Research Center. This session was produced by researcher Shema Nouriand. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Kindly leave us a review and a rating. Thank you very much.